Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. Our guest today is Bad Snacks, who is a music producer, violinist, and electric violinist known for her string-centric lo-fi hip-hop style. Bad Snacks has played violin on countless sessions and even for big video game trailers like Rainbow Six and has even produced music for Google and YouTube and has released her own successful albums such as Neat Tapes 1 and 2 and Bathtub Bumps. In this episode, we talk all about her rise as a music producer, the importance of using her YouTube and social media to build up a community, building up an income as a full-time musician, moving to and away from big cities like Los Angeles, and much more. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Bad Snacks. All right. So my first question for you is actually about how you went from singer-songwriter to Bad Snacks. Because that's how you started, right? You, like You went to LA, did the singer-songwriter thing, and then eventually transitioned. I'm curious what that transition was like and what gave you the impetus to do it. Yeah. Okay. Good question. <laughs> right <laughs> off the bat. Uh, I guess kind of going back a little bit, I have to like tell a little bit of my life story, which is that I'm I'm from the Boston area originally, and I'm a violinist and a fiddler. So naturally, when I was living in Massachusetts, I was kind of playing gigs in the folk Americana circuit. And that's like where I learned, you know, how to write songs and also like what kind of gigs I could get. And in Massachusetts at the time, that was kind of like the only way that I could get gigs and kind of like make music my full-time thing but at the same time I was like listening to hip-hop and electronic music like I wasn't listening to Americana music like I I mean I love folk music but it's definitely not like what I listen to in my free time you know and I I've always known that I wanted to be a professional musician and I just kind of like never really put it together that I, I could be a producer or make the kind of music that I listen to because I have no background in jazz like I'm I, I don't know, I don't know anything about production you know and I'm just a consumer of music right so I moved to LA kind of with the intention of being a session string player and getting gigs as a songwriter and just kind of seeing how that would go but then I moved in with my uh, brother who lives out in Los Angeles and he had to leave town for like a month, but he set me up on his laptop and just kind of taught me the fundamentals of like logic nine. (laughs) (laughs) And that kind of like started triggering it. And then the real like aha moment was the first time that I went to this event called Low End Theory in Los Angeles, which is a beat showcase. It's like an instrumental. I mean, it's not always instrumental, but it's like, you know, the synthesis of electronic music and jazz and hip hop. And I remember the first time that I went to Low End Theory, it was like, oh, this is like the closest to church I've ever been. (laughs) And it was like like a very like spiritual moment where I was like, this is what I want. Like, these are the artists that I like to listen to. This is the kind of music that I am a, you know, junkie for. So I'm going to figure this out. So I had a residency. I had a couple residencies in LA when I first moved there and like singer songwriter things. And just uh, over the course of a couple years, I was like slowly working up my production chops until like two, 2017. And I like made the conscious decision where I was like, 
no more singer-songwriting stuff. I have to dive into this. Like, I'm going to just go for it. So that was kind of the genesis of Bad Snacks. So I'm, I'm curious then, when you're going to LA, what kind of drew you there? Because every musician goes there, right? Like, that is the thing that every musician in the US says, I'm going to LA, I'm going to make it. What drew you there? What was the idea in your head when you first went there? Yeah, so like I mentioned, my brother lived in LA and he's a professional musician as well. He's a drummer, but he also engineers and produces for his singer-songwriter friends. And I would go there and I would visit him like almost yearly from the time that I was 15. And every single time I would be in town, I would always get hit up for gigs, like for string work. Ah. So I was kind of like, you know, if there's any place out there for somebody like me to be a full-time musician, it's going to be LA. But then the other side of that equation was very much like, I want to be where my heroes are. I want to be mm-hmm. where the music that I listen to the most is actually made and created and see if I can like weasel my way in. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was kind of the big draw. I mean, my my brother is responsible for a lot of that because I think if I if I didn't have that kind of like known support, like a, like a literal crash pad <laughs> might have taken me a little bit longer. Yeah, that makes a big difference. And you also leveraged your platform and had your YouTube channel, social media and stuff. You leveraged that super, super well into your career, or at least from my outside point of view, it seems to that's worked really well for you. Where did that kind of educational bent come from? Because you have a lot of great tutorials, you have lots of great things you show off. How did that start? Where did that come from? Yeah, so I have been a teacher since forever. Like my first teaching job, I think I got when I was like 17 and it was at a music shop. And and even before then, I was like teaching guitar and violin. So I've been a music teacher since I could work. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it just kind of stayed with me and, you know, kind of recognizing that I have an ability to, to sometimes simplify things <laughs> that are fairly complicated. Like, you know, I taught kids. I taught kids for a really long time. So it's like, you know, if you can teach a three-year-old anything, <laughs> then maybe maybe the internet will respond well to that. And I think, you know, in making my YouTube channel, it was kind of a couple things. It was like part of it was like that educational aspect because I was learning, you know, how to produce from production tutorials. And I was like, well, like I kind of have a weird angle on this because I'm a string player, you know, like learning how to make beats. You know, maybe there's something that somebody else can learn here and kind of like trying to think about it as like a take a penny, leave a penny, but, you know, take a video, leave a video kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) And then I think the other part of it was also for my own records of like documenting my progress. You know, it's like instead of like, uh, you know, like the fitness progress pics and stuff like that, it was like, you know, like my beat making progress videos. Um, The only thing is that I made them extremely, you know, public. Right. (laughs) Like I look back on it now and I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel that with the social media and stuff started getting you more notoriety, getting you opportunities, getting you gigs? And how did they come about? Like in your career, like, did you find like, oh, when I released this video and it got lots of views, did you find that people came to you for more work? People say like, oh, I'm going to go get you for some string work or whatever it may be. Yeah, totally, totally. And and I think that that kind of inadvertently became the business model after the fact, you know, like I, I started posting things for the reasons that I just mentioned of just like, okay, like, you know, maybe somebody will learn something from this. And also like, this is a good way for me to document. But then yeah, it quickly became like, oh, this is my calling card. This is how people know I exist. And that's like, honestly, where I've gotten a lot of my opportunities. And now it's like, it's at a point in my career where I have enough work on my plate without the social media stuff, which is kind of what I always wanted. But, uh, but even still, it's like, even down to like the the synthesized violin stuff, it's like, I'll get session work, like remote recording work, because people are like, I 
want a synthesized violin and I'm like the only person they can think of because they saw a video, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And it's it's really interesting how I'm in the same boat of like you want to build it up enough of a following so that you don't necessarily need to keep building it anymore. But it's nice. It's nice to be in that state. But you kind of have like uh, an interesting thing you hit on because you worked on a YouTube video, you're teaching yourself, you're teaching other people. A producer in music wears so many hats that no one really knows about until they start doing it. So can you talk about some of that, the various things you need to do to keep that going? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I actually was joking with some friends earlier this year where it's like, <laughs> if the if the amount of hats that I wore were real hats, I would look so stupid. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it really depends on like even like what subsect of music you're talking about, because like being a social media manager can be a full time job. Totally. Being a musician can also be divided into subsects of like, what kind of musician are you? Are you a hired gun? Are you a producer? Are you a writer? Are you a uh, MD? Are you, you know, somebody who does like playback engineering? You know, like it, there's so many different things. And I think like the the time that I felt like I was wearing like the most hats, like I looked the most theoretically stupid was <laughs> like, I, I was preparing for Red Rocks earlier this year. And like, you know, I kind of got thrust into that opportunity a little bit because I, I I wasn't even planning on like playing live shows this year. And it was an amazing opportunity that kind of like landed at my door, but I was also grossly unprepared for it. And so I had to like learn how to do so many things in a very short amount of time. And fortunately, you know, I have a pretty extensive network of like really smart, generous, kind people <laughs> in my corner. So I was able to like reach out to people and do a lot of Zoom things. But yeah, it's like exactly what I was mentioning of like, okay, we got to promote the show. We got to order the merch. We got to like, you know, set up uh, all of the logistics. And also like, bear in mind, like I have management that also helps me out with this. And even with that, it's like, I'm still like, okay, we got to do playback. I got to figure out how to integrate Ableton in this because now I have musicians with me and then we're going to do all this and blah, 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 blah. You know, it's just like, it's a, it's a really extensive list. And you were saying earlier, you know, it's nice to build up a platform so you don't have to keep building it, but you do have to maintain it. And that yeah. is also, that's like a full-time job right there. <laughs> So how are you, how are you, I mean, this is the question and it's, it's a loaded one, but how do you balance it? How do you keep it like from tipping over? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's just, you have to prioritize. I don't get everything done every day. Absolutely not. In fact, there's a lot of stuff that I deeply neglect for very long spurts of time. <laughs> and like, I, I feel bad about it, but sometimes like, you know, YouTube and my discord and Twitch are like the first things to kind of be like, you know, sacrificed when I'm like really busy. You know, because it's like I love my community and I'm trying to provide things for them and, and you know, keep it engaging and stuff. But at the same time, it's an enormous amount of work. And on a technical level, like I actually don't make that much money from YouTube right. and I don't make that much money from Twitch. And it's also like artistically too, you know, it can be a little bit of a distraction. So it's like right now, like I am in album mode, creation mode, whatever. And whenever I take a moment to like, you know, create something on stream, even though there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And like, that's me exercising and it actually can be really helpful in a lot of scenarios. Sometimes it's more exhausting than anything of just like, you know, I'm kind of creating something in front of an audience and it's a little bit different than creating things, you know, by myself when nobody's watching. It's a different process. I mean, I, I don't I don't balance everything all the time. And it's just about prioritizing and, and checking in when you can. And then when you do have the bandwidth that you're like, okay, I'm going to like now I'm going to set up a beat battle or pop on stream or like I'm going to put out a tutorial now. Mm -hmm. Do you have like boundaries that you set in your brain or out loud where you like say like, okay, I'm clock out at this time because with freelancing, as you well know, there's no stopping, right? You could work 20 hours a day. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, on a technical level, yeah, I feel like I'm always on the clock, you know, because like sometimes I make the mistake of like rolling over at like two in the morning and I'm like, I wake up kind of hazy and I check my phone and somebody sends me an email. And I'm like, I don't respond. <laughs> like, like, you know, um, but I've been getting better about it. I mean, the, the shift to the East Coast has kind of changed things with the time zones and stuff. But typically speaking, you know, I try to match up with like, you know, a nine to five schedule as best as I can. Because also now that I'm not living in Los Angeles, I'm living back on the East Coast. You know, most of my friends, the vast majority of my friends are not freelancers. And it's like, you know, I'm not going to sacrifice my deeply needed social time <laughs> uh, just because I can't manage that time myself. And I think also by giving myself those like boundaries and stuff, it's like it makes it a lot easier to be like, okay, we got to knock some stuff out you know, before four o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, when you're in that creation mode, then because you, you're in it right now, so it's perfect. How do you kind of mentally balance the idea of like, okay, I'm working on an album, I'm working on an EP, whatever it may be, there's going to be no real return on this right away, right? Like you might make a few songs, but you can't just release it right there and get the money right away. So how do you kind of mentally balance like this is the time where I'm just going to make a thing, but I won't see any return from it right away? Right. Well, I mean, this is actually a very sacred time for me because it takes a lot of prep to get to this spot. And so like earlier this year, I was like pounding out gigs, you know, like I was working a lot. I was saying yes to a lot of things and also just kind of getting myself into a position. And I did this actually before the release of my second beat tape as well, where I saved up enough money where I was like, all right, we're taking the next couple months off and we're just gonna dive in, you know? And that's a huge luxury. Like I can't stress it enough. Like it's amazing that I even get to do that. I mean, that's also part of being freelance is like, you know, sometimes when it when it rains, it pours. And I mean, in this case, it can be a really good thing. And then you have like the drought, you know. <laughs> and I think for me, just the way that I navigate that is just by really setting myself up to be like, okay, this next six months, you know, like obviously be creative where you can. But right now it's about work. Right now it's about saving up, you know, right now, like I'm kind of in a winter situation of just like, okay, I'm going to be in this particular location for X amount of months. And this is my writing period. And that's my priority. Awesome. Okay, that makes sense. Because I'm sure as soon as people said like, yeah, that would be a really nice thing to be able to take a few months off. I'm sure everyone was like, oh, that sounds so nice. How do you advise people get to that point? Like, what do you tell them to do if they're music producers like you? to do to make sure that in the future they can get there? The first thing that comes to mind is always look at it as investing in yourself. Because just to clarify, it's not time off. It's actually invested time. So, you know, it's like even though my schedule in writing mode is like on a couple of technical levels, it looks very relaxed of like, okay, I'm not technically on a schedule. I don't have you know, real deadlines. But at the same time, it's like, this is me gearing up for a huge next chapter of my life that's going to sustain me for, you know, potentially years to come, just like my previous projects have, you know, where mm -hmm. it's like, I really took the time I took, you know, with Need Tape 2, I think I acutely took like, October through February off to work just on the tape and live off of my savings. And I, I've released one project since then. It was kind of a casual project, like the bathtub bumps thing. But really, like that tape is still propelling me forward. So it's an investment, you know. And I think for me, it just right now, it kind of lined up 
you know, the, the way that my gigs lined up and then my living situation lined up. It's like, yeah, no, it makes sense. And also like, let it be known. I still have gigs, you know, like I'm still working on, you know, on side projects right now, but I have it so that it's like my creative process is the priority because nothing else that I do in my career matters if I, as an artist, am not like having a good time, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, I think a lot of people get into the state, especially when you're writing an album is like, especially with you, you're you're in an interesting position where you want it to do well, so it can keep propelling you forward, of course. How do you then start thinking about promotion? And when do you start thinking about promotion? Because that's a huge other part of making this album. It is. It is. And, you know, to be completely frank with you, I'm not the best at the promotion process. Like, I've really lucked out in the sense that like there's like a formal release process when you have like a larger project, which is like, you you know, you release singles and you release visuals with those singles and you get them like playlisted or whatever. And you send them to blogs. And by the time that the uh, actual project comes out, you usually have like a tour lined up. You know, I've actually never gone through that process. Not to say that I don't want to. And I think like this might be a little bit different because they actually have like kind of the help to to do that. But I think up until this point, it's really just been about like, okay, how do we just make this like as organic as possible? And like, I'm like a very community focused person. And so a lot of like my promotional content actually ends up being kind of like just interactive content of like, okay, you know, you guys want to remix this, you want you guys want to jam on this, like, here are the stems, you know, I also find that oftentimes, the more that I give away f- for free, the kind of more it ends up being returned in this way of like, there's like an honor system a little bit. And, you know, it's interesting. It's like every time I release like a sample pack, for instance, like I kind of do the pay what you want thing. And like, yeah, there are a lot of people that just cop it for either free or a dollar. But then there are other people that are like, here, I'll pay a hundred bucks for this sample pack because they were like really genuinely supportive. And I think by the time it like evens out, it's like, I feel supported. (laughs) I love that. And in terms of getting that support, I'm sure there are tons of people who either want to be a musician or are musicians who can't, who don't know what their community is yet. Like can't, don't know how to find it, don't know how to get in there, but it's so important. What do you advise to them so they can get that social support that they need? Uh, I would say learn how to be a fan first. Learn how to be a fan because that's where I found my community was like by going to events, going to shows, like following people that I was genuinely interested in and like reached out to or, you know, or like not even reaching out to, but just like being familiar with. And in in Los Angeles, it's a little easier to do, especially like in my scenes, in my circles, like the beat scene, because it's like there are beat showcases and you just show up and make friends, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so follow what you like, you know, learn how to be supportive, learn how to be a good fan. And then usually you kind of put the pieces together over time. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And when it comes to like the support in terms of education, I know you wanted to go to Berkeley, but it was like crazy expensive because, of course, it's insane. And a lot of people think they need to go to music school, not just like want to. But I know you circumvented that and still made it work. So what do you kind of advise them to do? People who say think they either need to or really want to. What do you tell them in terms of advice? I mean, here's the thing is that I I would have loved to go to Berkeley. And now that I live closer to the campus and like I, I see it, I'm just like, yeah, that would have been a great time. That probably would have been some of the best years of my life if I went, I'm sure. And, you know, I think those like relationships and friendships are, are invaluable. I know that my, my brother's a Berkeley grad and like it's really carried him through a lot of his career. 
So there is a lot of merit to it, but I think the misconception is that it's impossible or that they get very scared of the idea of like having to circumvent that, you know, because it is, it's, it's tough. It takes a little bit more conscious effort and a little bit more planning, like, you know, strategic planning. And like my journey was definitely not linear, (laughs) you know, like I had a lot of gigs that were not great gigs. And I networked with a lot of people that I look back at those times and those opportunities. And I was like, wow, what was I thinking? You know, like if I had stuck with that, it would have been awful. So, you know, it's, it's not the most straightforward. It's not the easiest, but it's absolutely possible. And again, it's just about like following that passion of yours of like, you know, what gets you going and how do you put yourself in those situations as much as possible? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm curious, how do you put yourself in those situations as much as possible on top of, of course, showing up? What else is there? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it really manifests in just like finding people to genuinely be supportive of. I mean, that's like how I've like met some of my best friends. Like for instance, uh, one of my best friends, she goes by Dear Evergreen. And like, you know, I saw a video of her DJing some future bass and like I love bass music and stuff and she's a dope DJ. So I like hit her up on the, you know, in the DMs and I was like, I want to take a lesson with you. Can I take a lesson with you? And then we linked up and then we just hit it off and like, you know, been super close ever since. But, you know, like somebody like her is like a really good example of just like, you know, here's this person that I just like genuinely want to support, even if our like styles of music don't even like necessarily completely align because she's definitely more in like like the house based music kind of realm. And I mean, it's like there's a number of friends that I've made like that where it's just like, you know, being like an ally, you know, of just like being like, ah, like I'm in your corner, like we're in this together. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it's like that sense of community or just like, you know, even just like a, a team of people that are similarly creative minded and are going through similar struggles too, you know, so that you can like talk about it and and strategize together. You hit on something really cool where you DM'd her and said, oh, can I take a lesson with you? Like that implies that the learning is, you know, it's never over. You're always learning new things. You're always practicing. Always. Always. (laughs) Always. So what does that look like to you? Like what does that practice right now look like? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. So there are some underlying things that like I'm always trying to get better at that, you know, whether or not I'm actively practicing them is subjective. But <laughs> but like, for instance, I love jazz. I love listening to jazz. I love jazz voicings. It's just it's a spectacular style of music. <laughs> I mean, I just I really I love it. And my background has none of it you know, mm. and, and it makes me a little sad because I would have loved to study it a little bit more formally. And it's pretty heady, you know, it's like kind of it can be a little hard to break into. But that's something that I'm, I'm always working on is like how to expand my theoretical vernacular. And really, that comes from like, again, like knowing who you like listening to. And there's like tons of resources online for that. And you know, it's like, yeah, sometimes I don't I literally don't have the dexterity like on piano because it just didn't grow up playing piano. But that's something that I'm always working on is like how to expand my knowledge that way. And then another thing is just sound design. Like I love bass music. I love really raunchy sound design. It doesn't always make sense in my music per se, (laughs) but I love it. I love it. It's such a guilty pleasure. So that's like stuff that I always am working on in my free time too, of just like sometimes I have nights where I'm like, let's just make something sound like really distorted and aggressive, you know, and then taking those techniques and then like toning them down and implementing them in other places where it's like, okay, maybe this is like a little bit more appropriate for 
the kind of music that I'm making. <laughs> nice. So is it the sort of thing like during those sessions, let's say it is a sound design session, you're just sitting down and maybe open Serum and just make a bunch of stuff and then save those patches for later? What's it look like? Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of uh, patch surfing. Yeah. <laughs> one exercise that I really, really love doing, it, it's one that I recommend to a lot of students and I should probably do it myself a lot more than I do, but <laughs> it's the idea of uh, transcribing sound design. So let's take Serum as an example because Serum like a really great interface. It's a really nice layout. And you pull up a preset, then you open a like initialized patch of Serum on the track right below it. And then you just kind of like A, B them and try to match as close as possible to see like, okay, what is going on? What is this LFO mapped to? Like, is this FM synthesis? Like, what are we on right now? You know, you can do that with any, you know, virtual synth. Yeah, I like that. I like that. There's a constant, especially for musicians, there's like, this disbelief that musicians at a certain point are even working on stuff or even practicing, like it just comes out of them. You just show up and it's just perfect. And that's <laughs> not true, right? Like I'm sure you're in Ableton and I'm sure there's a lot of half saved projects that you're like, oh, oh. So do you ever go back and repurpose those old things? You just leave them alone? No, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so actually this is very poignant because I have potentially the worst organizational skills of any <laughs> professional musician I know. <laughs> I'm not I'm not proud of it, but it just is a fact. So there's a pro and a con here. Uh, the con is that I will lose beats. I will lose beats all the time. I'll be like, oh, like, wasn't there like a thing? And just like, I just cannot find it. My file naming system, trash. And I literally just, when I bounce things, I just bounce them to the same general folder. And then it's like <laughs> thousands of items just on, I, I really need to like, this is something I need to work on. <laughs> but the pro is that sometimes I'll do those deep dives, especially like when I get like hit up for a commission where they're like, we need these kinds of beats. And I'm like, well, I think I might have some stuff. And I just go back into the archives. I find the sessions that I literally have no recollection of making, open them and be like, oh, okay, cool. And then I like find sessions that I like completely forgot about. So that can be kind of a lifesaver sometimes. It's like a, it's like I've left, my past self has left my future self a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a... In, in terms of audio, I've noticed that having some degree of randomness can be really helpful mm. for getting ourselves out of our own heads. Yeah, So we're totally. not creating all the time. We just click like, oh, okay, I'll take credit because it technically was me. Yeah. But it is nice. It's nice to be able to do that. And do you find that in professional projects that happens where you're just like, oh, I need to make a beat for X client or whatever it may be. And you're like, here we go. I made this three years ago. Let's do this. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I think you're totally on the on the mark there with a, just like a little bit of unpredictability, you know? I mean, I think the other thing too that a lot of producers go through is like when you go into a session that was like, you know, three years ago and you're like, wow, I can't believe my brain thought of that. I would never make something <laughs> like that today. Yeah. It's kind of nice. It's nice. Yeah, yeah. It, force, it forces you back. It's kind of like the time capsule that you were talking about with YouTube, but in a different sort of vein, which totally. is very fun. Yeah, absolutely. I'm wondering then with, with all of this, I mean, I know you said it's disorganized, but with all of this stuff that you have, are you ever thinking of it in terms of like, okay, I can license this and I can sell this? Or does it just kind of come up when it comes up? Oh, it totally just comes up when it comes up. I mean, it's either straight up commissions where it's like, okay, you guys just have the song. And most of the time, 
you know, uh, just to be clear, like I, I'll make something from scratch <laughs> for a client. You right. know, it's like I have repurposed a lot of things for sure, but most of it is from scratch just to, you know, fit the prompt or, you know, whatever right. they're asking for. And then regards to selling, <laughs> I actually have never sold a beat. Like I've never sold a beat just mm. straight up to an artist. And it's not that I'm opposed to it. I think it's just like, that's like a, a whole other part of the industry. It's like once you get other artists involved, it's like a whole other ball game. And I think I just get myself into this little bit of like a mental loop of like, okay, if I'm going to make an instrumental for an artist and the artist is somebody that I really, really like, this instrumental has to be the best thing that I've ever made. <laughs> you know, like I can't let them down. Um, and that is sometimes that pressure can be a little paralyzing. And then conversely, you know, I've had a lot of people reach out for beats and it's like, let me listen to your stuff. And it's like, well, the thing is that I don't make beats that don't sound like me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think I, in that way, I'm also very particular about like who I work with. So it just, it just hasn't, Hasn't quite lined up yet, but it's like totally something that I'm like working on. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, it's just that the most of the time it's like I, I just don't organize it that way. It's like, you know, I'll just compile and compile and compile. And, you know, if some things get repurposed, that's great. I mean, oftentimes with the repurposing thing, it's like, you know, I'll try to deep dive into it and be like, OK, is this something that I can use for the next project, you know? And I have like little iTunes playlists to kind of organize them a little bit, but <laughs> it's really just to be like, okay, what kind of vibe can we curate here? You you hit on something really cool just now. Of you don't make beats that don't sound like you, which I think is really cool. And also it, it kind of hits against a common myth in the music industry where a lot of artists think, oh, I need to be able to, to do everything, which isn't remotely true. There's so many musicians out there. And no one's looking for someone who does everything. So can you speak to that? Speak to niches, especially in the music world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I mean, the music industry is fairly competitive. And I, I think there's a, a term I'm going to totally botch this, but it's like, you know, being a T-shaped person, which is that mm -hmm. you have like one specialty, but you can also kind of cover some other things like you have an understanding so for instance like just using my own music as an example of like okay the kind of beats that I make it's like a lot of the influence comes from like boom bap style hip-hop right that's like a big part of it that and like dance music but the top part is also like if somebody needs me to do either like you know a gorilla style like indie almost indie hip-hop like I can do that and also like if somebody really needed me to do like trap beats it's like I can do that because I I listen to this stuff I have an understanding of it but would anybody ever hit me up for trap beats absolutely not I would hope <laughs> that they wouldn't because that's so not my specialty right your sound becomes a calling card you know and it's like also I think it's really important because you have to really enjoy what you do. <laughs> you know, it really helps to create things that you're like genuinely proud of that you're happy to have in your discography or in your portfolio. Nice. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it lets you be in your own space as opposed to you trying to jump around and think like, OK, now I'm going to do orchestral because that's what people want, which is a common fear I see in in musicians all the time. Did you have anybody like a mentor or anyone like that in your life who kind of guided you on this? Who said like, no, be, you should be bad snacks. Like, it's okay. You don't need to do any, or was it that just kind of internal? I think it was a little internal. Like I have had mentors and actually, interestingly enough, one of my mentors, his name is Scott Welch. I think he actually taught me, 
I mean, he taught me a lot of things, but in regards to this particular like topic, I think he actually taught me what not to do because he was kind of like a, you know, like I'll cater to all these artists because, you know, he, he was trying to, to get a lot of work and he's extremely talented and he has like, you know, he has an ear for all of this stuff and everything that he made was great. But I, you could see the burnout where he was like, this is not really what I'm into. Like, I'm kind of tired of doing like this kind of music. This is not really what I want to be doing. And he would just keep putting all of this time and effort into it because it was like what paid. And I think, you know, just seeing that it was kind of like, I don't think I could do that. I just don't think I could do that. And that's good. Like sometimes having that realization can really determine your career and hopefully prevent that burnout for you. So awesome. <laughs> yeah. So a few, a few kind of final questions as we start wrapping up. I'm curious, when you first started as a musician, and you can have first started as any point in your life. It could be when you first picked up guitar or violin or anything like that. What did you define as success and how has that changed over time? And what is that now? Oh, that's such a good question. That's a really good question. Because I I think I was really shown a very strong example of what success looked like as a kid because I was very deep in the classical world. I was very deep in classical violin. And I actually remember distinctly my teacher asking me when I was 12 years old, she was like, do you want to be a professional violinist? And she was like, kind of like, yes or no. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, I don't know. And and at the time it was like, well, this is clearly, you know, I've been playing violin since I was three and a half. And so it's like, it's always been a part of my identity. It's always been the thing that I'm like, you know, the best at. And that's like what people knew me for in my like hometown because I just started from such a young age. And when I was 12, you know, I was kind of like, yeah, like I want to I want to be a professional violinist. Like I love music. I love playing. Like I love the lifestyle in a lot of ways. But to be a professional violinist was like, you know, to be a soloist, to spend 10 hours a day practicing, traveling all over the world, all of this stuff. And I think kind of taking that into pop music and, you know, a lot of like, you know, modern music, electronic, whatever, I think we often conflate fame with success as well. And, and this idea of like, you have to grind, 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 grind. And, and, you know, we just have this very common trope of what success means. And, and I definitely, that's what I believed. And I think my definition of success changed actually fairly quickly. It was like, after I had enough of a fan base where I realized like, it was like too much human interaction for one person to, to deal with. And it's taken me a few years to like regulate. And now I'm realizing that success is like the ability to enjoy, you know, it's like the ability to chill out when you need to and do the things that you need to and pay attention to other parts of life <laughs> um, while still feeling fairly secure that you can make your living, you can have your basic needs met doing what you love, but to be able to do it in a sustainable way. I think that's kind of a key word too, is sustainability. That's always been a huge thing because I learned very quickly in the classical world, like <laughs> you can burn out really quickly. Like you can, you can really mess up your body and your shoulders. Violin is not an ergonomic instrument. And so it's like, I mean, I was like in orchestra as a teenager and like, you know, I have friends left and right that are going to chiropractors because their backs and shoulders are all messed up. And I was just like, this is awful. <laughs> this seems really awful. And it's like, you know, if you're really in it and you love the grind, you love the hustle, you love that sense of purpose, you know, by all means. But I think 
for me personally, yeah, it's it's about sustainability and the ability to enjoy the process and just like live in the phases of potential and also live in the phases of execution, you know, where you're like actually on stage and doing the tours and stuff and just being able to find things that you enjoy about like every part of the process. I love that. That's a that's a perfect holistic answer to start wrapping <laughs> up on. So there's one one last question to ask you, and that's where can people find you? So you can plug anything you want, your IO music stuff, Instagram, all of it. Yeah, I mean, um, you just look up like Bad Snacks producer. <laughs> just a bunch of things will show up, I think. I think I'm probably the most active on Instagram in terms of like announcements and things. And then, I don't know, uh, I could recommend my Twitter, but my Twitter is kind of a free for all. I keep making a joke that with my friends that it's like, I'm not verified on Twitter, so I can say whatever I want. <laughs> and people are like, oh, well, she's not important. <laughs> it's fine. It's Yeah, fine. yeah, yeah. There's no gravity to what I'm saying. So I can be as unhinged as I want. <laughs> Amazing. That's perfect. Well, thank you so, so much for taking the time today, especially because you're in album creation mode. Super appreciate you taking the time. That's much appreciated. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been great. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash soundbizpod. Sound, B-I-Z, pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. And if you're looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to, this podcast is actually a part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. So if you want to check those out, hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. 